Hello and welcome to the 62nd episode of Rank and Review. This episode, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons and returning guest Lee Beckman are going to pay tribute to a master in the horror genre. This episode, we look at six films from Wes Craven. Actually, we're going to look at his work from his very first film to his very last, I'm sad to say. As usual, you will find spoilers and coarse language throughout the episode. And Lee was recorded over Skype, so if it sounds a little bit Skypey, that's why. Because it was Skype. Oh, we live in an age of wonderful technology. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Please do send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. And please check out the website at rankandreview.ca. So by the time this episode drops, it's going to be uh, 2016. This is the first rank and review of 2016. And unfortunately, on August 30th of 2015, we lost something of a horror icon in Wes Craven. Um, So this podcast is going to be in part sort of a tribute to him and in part just an examination of six of his films. I don't know about you, but I kind of had a weird sort of Phil Hartman reaction to the loss of Wes Craven, in that when Phil Hartman, the famed Saturday Night Live comedian, passed away, I was thought, like, oh, that's too bad. And in the following months, I kind of realized how much I actually really appreciated Phil Hartman and how, like, <laughs> I hadn't really fully recognized his impact. Because I like Wes Craven, and I've liked a lot of his movies, but I've also, you know, kind of fallen on the other side of it. But for better or for worse, he spent his most of his 76 years dedicating his life to the horror genre and to horror cinema. So yep. he is worthy of my respect. What do you feel about Wes Craven? Well, I'm actually going to quote you, but I'm also going to quote the great Johnny Mitchell. You mentioned this um, earlier, is you don't know what you've got till it's gone in regards to Wes Craven. Yeah. Um, the man was very, very interesting, and like, not only with his horror movies, but um, he was an academic. He actually taught at a university level. Um, he was a pornographer. <laughs> he got he got his start. Uh, he started directing, you know, softcore porn, which actually a lot of filmmakers in that time that's how they got that's how they cut their teeth. They were referred to as marital aids. They did not like to use the p word. 
Ah, ah, yeah. <laughs> um, he was also a professional bird watcher, uh, and I did when I did my research. Um, he was a u- unique guy. Like he was, he was a smart man who made his bones making horror films. I know he wished he could have had a career uh, beyond making horror films. He mentioned that more than once in an interview, and he did make uh, both a, 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 a yeah, music of the heart, a full length feature film with Meryl Streep. But also, uh, he had a, sh- a short film in Paris Jatem, so he did play outside that wheelhouse, and he did a couple of Twilight Zone episodes, which I, I guess were horror. He was responsible, whether you agree with it or not, um, but for two bona fide horror classics. Uh, one, obviously, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and The Scream films. Yeah. Um, they started basically two series of movies. Um, I think we're going to examine two films at least today, that I think are better than those, in my humble opinion. Yeah. But lover, but lover, love them or hate them, he did make two bona fide horror classic movies. He established uh, and, two horror franchises, and establishing yeah. one would be an accomplishment, and establishing yeah. two. But uh, there is a weird back and forth with me, because I do, like I say, I like Wes Craven, and this is what this whole episode is about. But... Yeah. Um, Two of the six movies that we're going to look at have been remade. Yes. And controversially, I'll say in both cases, they improved on the source material. And I agree with you. And that's not something I say often. So I wonder what it is about Wes Craven's work. Like, I don't think, I mean, they're solid source stories, but a lot of the times if Carpenter is remade or Sam Raimi is remade, people come away going, I don't know, you guys, what was that all about? But with Wes Craven, the core idea is solid. Yeah. He seems to me to be like this philosophical deep thinker. Like he should be some, you know, educator talking about, you know, ancient times. But instead he's focusing his energy on how to scare people and kind of sneakily teach at the same time. Yeah, but that's, that's what I liked about him was that there was a lot going on with his movies. You know, the, 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 the subtext or context below, um, I have found to, to be like nice little juicy bits. He he provided some beautiful imagery in his movies, and that and we'll talk about this that in this show. Um, but I miss him. Yeah, I, I, I miss the man. It's strange. Like I would not necessarily get super excited about the next next Wes Craven film, but I would get yeah. around to watching it, and I would you know yeah. I would have an opinion. Sometimes it would really work for me. Sometimes it really wouldn't. But I always liked that he was there trying. Yeah. Um, well, and the thing is, and not that, you know, Carpenter or these other famous horror auteurs, um, they make bad movies. And Craven was not above making a bad movies. His instincts didn't always favor him. And, you know, I'm looking at you, Deadly Friend and Vampire in Brooklyn, as <laughs> shiny examples, as movies that did not work. There's nothing really working for that. Even the people under the stairs, you know, it's got some serious tonal issues to it. So... He did make some bad movies, which I think hurt him overall. But he took big swings, you know? He did. People Under the Stairs I find intensely problematic, but, I mean, the villains are hilarious. But it was yeah. a big swing. It was ambitious. Yeah. Vampire yeah. in Brooklyn, you know, Eddie Murphy as a vampire, funny horror. I mean, it yeah. seemed like, it, like on paper that that might be something that could work, right? Yeah. Like, I understand where it's coming from. I think in earlier in the career, he was making bad movies just to keep the momentum going. Because if you're not, if you don't have a next project, you, you immediately start to think there won't be one. <laughs> but I thought he was stronger in the the first part of his career, though. 
Um, you know, with, with exception of, well, I only want to talk about it. One of the movies we're going to review, we'll get, we'll get to it. But his earlier filmographies where he was really strong. Yeah. Like, he, I, before he got to screen, he had Serpent in the Rainbow. He had Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street. Um, he had, I mean, Shocker's got some problems, but it's still, you know, vintage Wes Craven. Deadly Blessings in there. You know, after Scream, he's got Cursed. <laughs> he's got the Scream sequels. I like Scream 2. Um, he's got Vampire in Brooklyn. Uh, uh, My Soul to Take. Like, those those are the weaker Cravens to me. Yeah. So, um, I thought he was a lot more interesting in the 80s and 90s. And I wonder if that's not a mellowing with age that you see with a lot of uh, film directors who would think that they'll look at their younger works and say, I wouldn't have been as ugly about that. Steven Spielberg yeah. said if he had Close Encounters to do again, he would not have Richard Dreyfuss' character abandon his family without any yeah. thought or pretext, you know. Uh, you know, as you get older, you, you change. So I do yeah. think you're right. To a certain degree, the teeth kind of come out of the movies the later into it it goes. But yeah. he also sort of pushes the genre. Scream, you know, yeah. a lot has been said about Scream, but it's an examination of the genre while being a genre movie. And yeah, yeah it's just diminishing returns, as any slasher franchise is. And even the fact that it is diminishing returns is further yeah. commentary on the slasher yeah. genre. Even when it loses, it wins, Scream. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. and we'll talk about that in Scream 4, actually. I'm... I, I think that's a lot of Kevin Williamson, though. Yeah. That, that's, that's the script. I'm, I mean, obviously, Craven, you know, you've got to give him some props. But I think part of what makes Scream really good is that script and the dialogue. Yeah. Um, but Scream is also, I think, a film, and that's something that I kind of realized as I especially watched number four here. It's a film of its time and place. Not that Hills Have Eyes or any of there aren't, but... Yeah, I I don't want to say it has, it's it's has an age as well, but it's definitely a '90s movie. Oh, and but. yeah, that we'll, we'll talk about screen form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should yeah, yeah, we yeah. mention the six movies we're going to talk about? Is there anything you want to say more by way of introduction? Uh it was a passing. It was a passing of I, I don't want to say a passing of a friend, but West West, you made good movies. You were an interesting man. What what I discovered about you, you had a very interesting life, and you used elements of your life in your movies you you made you made art and you done you done good kid yeah. well said uh the six Wes craven films we're going to discuss so we're going to interestingly bookend it with we're going to start with his first film his first feature which was the very controversial last house on the left yeah and interestingly, we're going to end with his last feature which was scream four yeah. in the in-between we are going to look at the vicious thriller the hills have eyes Deadly Blessing, featuring, I think, the big screen debut, at least speaking role debut, of Sharon Stone. And I've got some things, some juicy bits about that one, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, then we're going to have The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is an yep. interesting sort of, uh, in quotation marks, real world zombie movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's, it's, yeah, yes. Yeah. And then... We'll talk about uh, of course, because we have to at least pay some reference to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, uh, he returned to it with Wes Craven's new Nightmare, sort of a meta-horror movie before meta-horror movies were in vogue. Yep. So those are the six Wes Craven horror movies that uh, Mr. Beckman and I are going to discuss this week on Rank and Review. One more thing. It was it was also a shock to hear that he died. Like No one, no one really knew, at least in the media, that he had brain cancer. 
that that was the one thing yeah that 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 sort of took me aback you know when I found out about it, it was sort of like he's dead of brain cancer yeah. um I read this interview with this uh with this man who interviewed him literally a week before his death, and he looked frail and everything, and they talked about his body of work and the one thing he said was that his him and his wife were just like the nicest, least pretentious people. And he just seemed like not at all like the guy who could make these horrific movies. So well, That's a common refrain about uh, horror directors, though. It seems like they get all of that shit out in their work and in their private yeah. lives. They're completely well-balanced. You're expecting to meet this, like, devious weasel character. And... Yeah. No, I think he was a sort of a gentle, philosophical guy. And yeah. uh, and a deep thinker, which is why it's particularly cruel that he would be fallen by brain cancer of all things. Yeah, I know. But I um, know. yeah, I love me some Wes Craven. Let's talk about it. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting. Keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. So, in the very early 70s, uh, Sean S. Cunningham, who would eventually bring us the Friday the 13th franchise, uh, and Wes Craven were a couple of basically no-budget filmmakers. And um, Cunningham produced this first feature from Wes Craven, this uh, last house on the left. And... um, I think it's an infamous film. It's one of the films sort of credited as being responsible for the video nasties list, this in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for yeah. its its brutality. And I do get it. It is definitely an incredibly brutal and violent sort of revenge picture. It is a nasty piece, yeah. But I think it's hard to look at The Last House on the Left in 2015. I think the way to watch The Last House on the Left is to watch it in 1972. Yeah. Um, I think in 1972, this is a very impactful, sort of shocking, grisly, like, oh my God, what am I looking at horror movie? And in yeah. 2015, it looks like an amateurish, frankly, kind of exploitation piece that maybe, then I hate to say this in a tribute episode to Wes Craven, is not entirely worth the cult status that it that it owns um, yeah. the content is what gives it its status the torture the violence the visceral you know end of it but uh i'm not as big i don't think that the performances are particularly strong and i don't think the execution is that effective but it's his first film so how many people's first film are amazing <laughs> too yeah it it's culturally relevant it had ripples in the sort of media culture of its day and it definitely made people sort of look at Wes Craven in that respect I can call it a success but for me in most other ways I don't but I realize this is an unpopular opinion so I'm going to send that ball right back to you (laughs) well I'm going to start actually talking about torture porn because I am a defender of torture porn when it's done right you know films like Saw, The Human Centipede, Hostel, Cannibal Holocaust I think all have places in the sort of cinema oeuvre. But I had a hard time with this movie as well. And it's more to do with some of the choices that, that Craven had. Um, first off, and it's, it's the music in this film that apparently like David Hess helped create. He's the actor that plays Krug, believe it or not. Right. Um, 
it, it the scene where they're driving in the car and they've got the two girls and there's this like sort of Karen Carpenter esque kind of music playing, and then we've got the rape scene and the torture scenes and there's that chase scene, and once again that sort of seventies Carpenter music. It's very it's kind of uh, abstract, ambient, noise based music. Yeah. So yeah. It, it kind of is abrasive to the ears. And I guess that matches all the abrasiveness to the eyes. But uh... It takes away the tension, not the ugliness and brutality, but it takes away some of the power. And that's just, I think, a wrong instinct by both Craven and Cunningham and, and Krug, believe it or not. I, it, it really, really threw me off. Like, you're supposed to be... And I was viscerally affected by what was seen but then you have this music and you're kind of going what and i and i shouldn't be feeling that also the side story with the cops the, the, that, that that was supposed to be funny yeah and and and, it, and it's not it's like this benny hell it's a different movie and an equally not interesting movie but like it, it really does sort of announce itself as a necessary i think we should do a little bit of service to the plot here we should yeah yeah we're, we're, we've jumped right in here go ahead basically two young girls so one of them's about to celebrate it i want to say her 17th birthday they're going to a concert. They're going to a concert, and uh, while they're on their way, they hear a radio broadcast about, you know, bad people have escaped, and uh, the, basically yeah. a very quintessential classic form horror movie setup. These girls come across a gang of bad people, and yeah. they are tormented. One of them is killed, one of them is raped and nearly killed, and... Uh, it's brutally executed. And it's not just the violence of it, it's... The humiliation, the psychological yeah. torment, like and stuff that people would be shocked to see. Even today, even today, it's still shocking that they like demand that this girl wets herself. Yeah, no. Well, people got into fights apparently at the movie theaters. People tried to break in to the projector. You know, the film apparently was cut and sliced. They had to f find like the original negative to put it on this DVD uh, with the whole uncut. But they had to search like high and low. For years, both Cunningham and Craven did didn't know where all of this film was because people like uh, theater owners would get the film, screen it, realize what they had, and would censor the film themselves. So when you talked about how this film had an impact, yeah, it it, it really really did. I think not since like The Exorcist had a film at that point really sort of shook America. Um, but um, it was a nasty bit of business, this movie. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, it is the, humili the humiliation that is hard to watch. Um, you talked about the performances and how they were weak. I, I will disagree with you. I think that's one of the strong points of the movie. I think both girls, uh, and what are their names here? Um, Sandra Castle and uh, Lucy Grantham? Yeah, they play Marie and Phyllis. They bring it. They well, really as far as their torment and their death, absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, like, I, I believe they're suffering. <laughs> I, I do. Well, because they really are. That scene where she urinates, like, she actually urinates herself. Um, um, and knowing that, like, that's... That's humiliating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, the group's reaction to sort of laugh and scream and holler at it. 
Um, I might my perception of this might be colored a little bit by the remake because I really actually genuinely liked the remake and the performances oh. because I kind of understood everybody more. Yeah. I mean, well, the girls are fairly simple. They're just girls who want to go out and have a good time and don't have a really good danger detector in their head. Yeah. But uh, in a way, they, the guys are evil in the remake, but I kind of believe them in a way I don't here. Really? Because once again, I thought David Hess and who else here? Uh, Fred Lincoln, uh, Jeremy Rain, who played Sadie, and Mark Scheffler Jr., I think... They, they also bring this ugly nastiness. Where the remake got it right is the parents uh, of, of these two girls because really, it's their story. Yeah. The parents in the original don't do a lot for me. So when they get to this point of revenge where the mother's biting the penis and he's yeah. got the, was it a chainsaw or a gun killing Krug? Yeah. It wasn't there for me, Where, but the remake, I think, really realized is we get a lot more of the parents, and the performance are a lot stronger, so when the revenge part happens, you're in there going, yeah, give it to him. And it's still a brutal movie. It's not, there's not as much embarrassment and shame with the remake, I think. Like, there's no urinating or... Yeah. But there is there is still a, a pretty brutal rape scene, which the is... The stakes are really high again. This was more experiential. I, like, I sat there yeah. and I had a sour look on my face, but I don't yeah. know if I could say that I was, like, involved with it. I was experiencing it, yeah. whereas I was involved with it in the remake. But I'm going to try yeah. and pull it away from the remake. There are a yeah. few things here that I will say that I, I kind of get what he was going for. It just wasn't working yeah. for me. Yeah. When they're initially getting ensnared, and you can set, you can tell that this is going to snowball. This is going to get really ugly. Yeah. We will occasionally cut back to the parents, and they're yeah. like preparing this surprise birthday party. Yeah. Sort of this sort of juxtaposition of this, you know, completely nice loving gesture towards this horror and nightmare that's being. I understand what he's going for there, but you're right. His attempts at humor with the side story with the police don't ring true with you know the high and ugly stakes of what we're seeing other places in the movie. It also does nothing to really further the story. No. Like, honestly, you could cut the cops out. You would have sort of an oxymoron, a long, short film. But it does nothing to the story. They only show up at the bitter end right as the father is killing the last of them. Yeah. And they, they really don't. Like, they, they go, oh, yeah. and realize that they witnessed a murder and that's it. And then roll credits. Yeah. So you're sort of asking, what are the police doing here? Maybe they're... They were part of, like, this movie is based off The Virgin Spring, which was an Igmar Bergman film. Uh, I have not seen it, so I don't know. Maybe that's why they would put the cops in there. Maybe they thought it would release some tension, but it's just sort of puzzling. Martin Cove is one of the, uh, one of the actors. Uh, for all you geek people out there, Martin Cove was, was the bad guy in the original Karate Kid movie. He was the evil trainer who trained that bully. Um, but yeah, you're, you're just kind of going, what is the point of this? What is the point of that hippie scene where the cops stop the hippie, which is Steve Miner, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was weird seeing Steve Miner and him talking about it. But well, Steve Miner started to sort of spent his early career being Sean S. Cunningham's shadow in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, that was one thing that just really kind of took me out of the movie. Um, but yeah. I think as well, like with the Virgin Spring, there is a redemption piece. Like I haven't seen it, but I'm just reading about it. It's a religious movie. It's it's about 
you know, there's a, there, there's a beast in all of us, but we need to be forgiven. There's that redemptive piece to it. This kind it's, of is short on that. Yeah, it's short on that. And I mean, it, it is sort of short on the remake as well. There's not there as well. But I think, once again, I'll bring that back to the parents. But there's no, there's no real redemptive piece. It's just an ugly, ugly picture. And well, by the end, you're kind of going, what's the point? I will bring it back to religion again when we talk about Deadly Blessing, because I did want to oh, talk yeah. about it. But uh, he yeah. was, Wes Craven himself was raised in a strict religious household. In fact, he wasn't allowed to go to movies. And I feel like this is the pendulum sort of swinging to the other extreme. When he finally oh. broke free of that and decided, you know, he was going to, you know, not only turn his back on that, but he was going to be an artiste and he was going to embrace all of the things that were once forbidden to him. When he made his first feature film, he made an ugly, visceral, you know, like primal howl of a movie the trailer yeah. for this movie it has this mantra you know no matter how upset you get you can just repeat to yourself it's only a movie, only a movie. it's only a it's movie only a movie and yeah so like it's interesting that i think that i think part of the e meanness part of the evil in this movie comes sort of from him breaking the chains of religious repression and uh, oh, yeah. it's funny because somebody who would still be in that prison of, of oppression or whatever would look at this movie and think of it well as torture porn or, or you know something that should be banned governments have organized you know to prohibit people from watching movies like this <laughs> And yeah, no. the interesting thing is, is that in the end, I kind of feel like they were maybe doing people a favor. I don't necessarily think it's that great of a movie, but I understand yeah. why it's yeah. culturally relevant. I understand why people, you know, pay attention to it and why it's a significant horror movie. And to make an impactful, significant horror movie with your first one out the gate. Yeah. Congratulations, Mr. Craven. It's just yeah. not my bag at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting because I watched the special features on 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 the disc, and he talked about how the mood on the set was pretty you know light and happy for for a lot of it, but then they got to this scene where the one girl's disemboweled, yeah. and he, he said that's the day that everything changed. It just shifted. There was no more laughter. They had lunch, and no one really said anything. And that's when he realized that he made maybe had taken it a little too far. It's not um, fun for anyone, even the actors anymore. Yeah. And it ironically, once again doing some research on this, he's never seen Wes Craven himself has never seen the completed version of it. He's seen the movie because he shot and made it. Yeah. But he, he himself has says he can't watch it. Wow. Well, and that's an so. interesting thing to discuss, depending on what version you get. Uh, we have ourselves basing this review on sort of the standard print, the 100 and tw or one <clears throat> hour and 24 minute version. But <clears throat> it's been cut to as low as an hour and 16 minutes. And yeah. there isn't a print that is apparently an hour and 33 minutes. So um, yeah. depending on what you watch, you'll see more or less of these girls being debased and humiliated. Um, yeah. In some versions, they're stripped and forced to make love to each other. In some versions, they're not. You know, like yeah, um, it, it's it's a prolonged and ugly sequence, and that's kind of what the movie swings on. And I kind of feel like the movie should swing on the uh, the pivot of the the parents' realization and revenge. But yeah. uh, I don't know that that that's what happened here. Uh, that's what yeah. I connect to. That's like the Papa Bear instinct in me. If someone did something bad to one of my kids. Yeah. Uh, I would go to some primal rage probably pretty quickly. And I yeah. think that, that it's still unhealthy, it's still wrong, it's still destructive, but I think that yeah. that is a force that can be triggered and unleashed, and that is oh. a worthy subject of horror. 
Uh, yes. I just think that that it, it it was frankly better handled in the remake. I say this with all due respect to Craven, but uh, oh yeah, he he made an a, an influential sort of important horror movie. I don't happen to like it a lot, but some people yeah. may. And it's you know no matter what I say, it's always going to be the infamous Last House on the Left. Um, yes, that that trailer music with with the. Yeah, that also took me out of it, man. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you, you can't take away from where it left its mark. Like, you mentioned Last House on the Left, and people go, ooh. <laughs> whether, whether, whether you well, enjoy it's the wrong word. Whether you, you see it as a quality piece of film or not, you can't deny its power and where it made its mark. So I'll, I'll give you that. He, I, Craven also said he wanted to make something ugly. And I and I kind of understand and respect that because he's. I think he is. I agree with you. I think he's working out his anger at the repression he experienced as a child, and he's even said so himself that he looks at at, at his movies and he can see the anger there. I, I was actually going to talk about this during Deadly Blessing, but um, but yeah, he's mentioned about how he felt like he missed out on a lot because of his upbringing. It's quite a start. I I agree with you. It's quite a start. Yeah. Uh, his instincts aren't quite honed yet, but he could definitely see the talent there. Yeah, it's more quote um, important and quote interesting than it is quote good in my yeah. opinion. But I get why people are still talking about the last house on the left. The hills have eyes. A night of terror. A day of vengeance where no one was spared. No one. Kill the babe. Kill me. They fought back. Anything was a weapon. A family dog to the family car. It's working! The Hills Have Eyes. The most shocking, terrifying film you will ever see by Wes Craven, writer and director of The Last House on the Left. The hills have eyes. The lucky ones died first. So here we come to talk about a fairly, another fairly infamous piece of work from Mr. Wes Craven, this time from 1977. Yep. And uh, this is called The Hills Have Eyes. It also has in common with The Last House on the Left that it was remade in the last 10 years, and I think very successfully by Alexandre Angin. Uh, yep. That said, unlike what I had to say about Last House on the Left, I think that Craven's Hills Have Eyes is a really strong horror movie. <laughs> like, uh, its elements are all familiar, you know? A group yep. of people go to a place that is forbidden, that they should not go, and they get picked off one at a time. But the major difference here is that instead of it being Teenage Nitwick number one, Teenage Nitwick number two, and Teenage Nitwick number three, it's a family. It's a family in a trailer, and they are uh, fighting for survival. And every loss has such impact to them. Yeah. The stakes are impossibly high just because it's a family. Yeah, and they're not stupid either, really, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think they make a wrong decision, obviously, going out in the desert. But these are smart people that come to the realization pretty quickly that they're being hunted and 
they're being hunted brutally. (laughs) It's a civilized family that's being hunted by an uncivilized family. Now, the history of these creatures, these hill folk, is not as richly explored in the original. There's a little bit more mystery to them. But they definitely have a family dynamic. And we do, in a limited way, get to explore it. We kind of get to know both families. And we love one family, and we fucking despise the other. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, it's based... uh, based, Well, it's loosely based off a true story uh, of the the, the Sonny Bean saga. Apparently, it took place in Scotland. Um, I don't know the time exactly, but apparently there was a family, a a family of rogues living in the Scottish forest that would sabotage and kidnap and murder families or groups as they would pass through this forest and they actually did take a child to use as a sort of ritual sacrifice craven came upon this story in the library when he found out when he got money to do this, do a movie basically in a in, in a desert uh he got and had the equipment that from his softcore porno days that he had rented and went off and made this film with uh peter locke it's a simple story, I agree, but it's really well done, and it's due to the fact that you've got a director whose skills are sharper, and visually he starts to improve as well. I really like the opening credits with the silhouette of the hills. Um, I don't know, I, and just with the choice of music as well, I thought it was aesthetically pleasing and eerie, and it was a great way to start the movie. It's simple, really. I mean, you just got... This, this, the font with the credits and this black silhouette of the, of the mountains of the desert and right away I was sucked in kind of going okay because right, I hadn't seen this movie before you know, this the, the first time I'd actually seen Craven's version was you know for this podcast oh wow that's I, interesting I, yeah yeah and so I'd seen the remake before I'd actually seen this version so that um, might color your perspective a little bit See, to me, The Hills Have Eyes takes sort of the themes and ideas and approach of Last House on the Left and kind of perfects them as much as he could within the parameters of 1977. He kept the visceral violence. He kept the high stakes. He kept sort of the the violation and breaking of the family and that sort of violence. But he recontextualized the story and, uh, and gave us characters that we could identify with more than just relating to their suffrage, but like... Yeah. It becomes survival horror. Like, what the fuck would I do to get out of that situation? And uh, yeah. a lot of people, myself included, I like to think of myself as a fairly peaceful person. Like, I, I am not a violent man. I make jokes, yeah. but, like, I am a... <laughs> despite being a big, intimidating-looking fellow, I'm a teddy bear. Yeah. And yeah. uh, one of the things that's interesting about the horror genre and about stories like this, that it presents a scenario to me where I could be turned into a very violent person. Yeah. If somebody violated and hurt my family like this, and my back was against the wall, and I couldn't call the police, I, if it came to picking up a rock and bashing in somebody's skull, I would. Yeah. You know? And again, it's just different. Watching your, your, your father get burned alive or your brother get bludgeoned to death by a crowbar has way more impact than your schoolmate or, you know, yeah. the guy who you caught a ride with to this, you know, remote location. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the fact that they're not dumb kids, they they have car, they they're just taking a shortcut through the devil the desert, and they their their car breaks down, right? Well, well, it's well, they're booby trapped. It's, it's, it's booby trapped. They're sabotaged. Yeah, but it's not it, it's not because they were stupid. It was nothing they did. They just yeah. happened to go to the wrong place without knowing it. They were in the wrong place. Yeah, and it yeah. costs most of them their lives. 
I think Craven is successful with, with a theme that he explored earlier with Last House, where there is the sav- the savages, there's savagery in us all. He's very successful with this this time around. Part partly because you're right, the family, the actors are really really good in this movie. Um, what's her name from E.T. and Cujo? Um, D. Wallace. My girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, she's she's really good in this movie. Yeah, and they're like the villains themselves. They are terrifying, yeah. and you want them to suffer when they start suffering. Michael Berryman is, of course, the fellow whose impressive visage usually uh, boasts on the on the posters for *The Hills Have Eye*. So he's, yeah. We will also talk about him again when we talk about *Deadly Blessing*. And uh, yeah. Craven has used him a few times, and uh, yeah. he does have you know that sort of interesting, creepy look to him. I understand why he's sort of featured in, in the horror movies, but cult people yeah. will keep an eye on that. I think that for me, one of the most infamous things about this movie is the famous assault on the trailer. I think that's yeah, what we were leading up to. Uh, the D. Wallace character is basically cornered by these evil people and is put in a position to defend the baby. Yeah. And she has this confrontation with these evil bastards where it's a fight to the death for this baby. And she yeah. loses. Yep. And it's shocking. It's still yeah. shocking. It's shocking today. Like it's like not the not what you expect. And the fact that the family has been played and manipulated, the men have been drawn away so that this can happen. Yeah. You know, it's it is brutal. And yep. and uh, I emotionally react to it. Like I, I, I my hands go up to my head and I'm like, holy yeah. shit in a way that I wasn't while I was watching Last House on the Left. Like I said, Last House on my head left, I had kind of a sour look on my face. I was just sort of looking yeah. at it like this yeah. is gross. This is yucky. But I wasn't yeah. emotionally connecting beyond that. Whereas yeah. in The Hills Have Eyes, this really gets my blood up. This this engages me because I oh, yeah. want to see this evil punished. You know? Oh, yeah. No, you are engaged. Legend has it, though, of Craven. Like, they were filming this, and Craven wanted the baby to be murdered. And the cast universally said, if you do this, we, we, we all walk. Wow. So he he was essentially yeah. Craven wanted to take it even farther, but like D. Wallace and all of them said no, no, this is not happening. Yeah. So um, the fact that yeah, so the child along with the dog was supposed to die originally. That's and interesting. There's I, like a cast coup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it was the right choice. I think that would have taken the movie it in an even ugly, uglier place. I think again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier that. Uh, sort of the younger, more aggressive filmmaker. He's just doing stuff that is forbidden. And he's sort of rubbing people's nose in it a little bit. But this yeah. time he's doing it within the context of a, a high-stakes, thrilling story. And yeah. I would argue that he didn't quite successfully do that the first time out. Yeah, no, that trailer scene, it, it's still it's still famous to the day, both in the original and it's done really well in the remake. They used, they used that, that dead dog was actually a dead dog as well. They, they bought it from the local sheriff, I found out. <laughs> yeah, that, that also makes me go, uh, yeah. Speaking of dogs, I mean, that's, that's heartbreaking that that was a real dead dog. But it has one of my, like, favorite, you go puppy dog, somebody feed that dog a steak scene yeah. <laughs> in movie yeah. history. Because yeah. at that point, we want the good guys to have a win so badly. And the dog, of all people, delivers that win. And they don't even know it happened, but we did. It was a relief yeah. for the audience, but not for the yeah. protagonists. It was like... Yeah. 
Oh no, I was yelling, "Go Fido!" Yeah. Go Fido! Oh. It's a birthday. Apparently, like he really bit Michael Berryman too. Like he he really hurt him. Oh no! So kudos, kudos for him. But um, yeah, no. When that when that other shepherd starts kicking ass and taking names, I was like, yeah. So yeah, good for him. It's another entry point for me and the family too. Being such a dog person, the fact that they so love the dogs. The dogs are as much members of the family as anyone else, <laughs> you know. And the oh, dogs yeah. protect the family as as vehemently as anybody else. I love oh, it. Yeah, yeah no, it, it, yeah, no. You are affected when that one dog gets it, but they are protecting the family. So that's that's when things started going wrong. There's that scene with over the radio. I thought, oh. Well, and that's, that's just it. Like, they're not just killing these people. Part of it is they're really enjoying the torment on it, too. Yeah. These people are awful. <laughs> and like I said, we yeah. don't understand them to the same degree that we do in the in the remake when we understand that they've been sort of malformed and, and uh, mutated due to uh, nuclear testing. <clears throat> these yeah. people, as far as we know, are just like crazy inbred hill folk who like to fuck shit up. They're like yeah. rednecks taken to the most evil extreme possible. <laughs> I think it's a good idea that we don't know a lot about them. We just know them as this sort of weird rogue family. I think that that works t to the, the terrifying nature of them. Apparently, I, I, I've never seen the sequel, but the sequel, of course, explains more of the family. Um, and also, Michael Berryman's character survives somehow when he's clearly dead in this no, one. No, his throat's out. Yeah, yeah so... Oh, yeah, and he breaks his leg. That scene was also... <laughs> no, there's lots of scenes, and again, still, it was made in 77, that today make you go, oh, my God, dude, yeah. that's awful. Yeah, yeah, I was doing a lot of, ooh, ooh, and I was eating chicken while this was going on as well. That also added some aesthetics to it. Maybe not the right choice for watching that movie. Using so. any weapons that, that are available, including a rattlesnake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that steak was a good choice. Also, yeah, Craven's got a thing about using animals as weapons. Not only this, but in Deadly Blessing as well. Yeah, no, he and, does have a, a thing, I think, specifically with snakes. You'll see it again and again in his film, Snake Imagery, where it's not yeah. necessarily asked or called for. We're going to definitely see it again in Serpent and the Rainbow. We're going to see it again in Deadly Blessing. And we yeah. see it here. It's not even like the the context here makes a little bit more sense that there'd be a rattlesnake there. But the, you know the the way in which it's used in the plot is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but did it did it rock you like a hurricane, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> really, like the the problems with the movie for me are still kind of minimal. Like the there's a '70s aesthetic to the delivery and the execution yeah. of the performances because it was yeah. made in the '70s and that yeah. you know I, I I completely give it a pass on that. Some yeah. of the effects are more convincing than others, but none is so unconvincing as to take me out of it. Yeah, uh, no, it's I, a I was really never really strong out of movie. horror movie, and uh, yeah. I recommend it. I think this movie and its remake kind of hold hands. I guess I would have to say if I was asked to pick which one I prefer, I would say I like the remake a little bit more. Yeah. But uh, it's tough. It's tough. And, I don't know, uh, man. Like, I, I I really, really enjoyed this version. They're both good. Like, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. They're both very strong, visceral movies. And I was deeply affected by them. Um, I don't know. It, it's tough. I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> Even speaking about it now, it, it's coming back to me and, and how it moved me. Um, the trailer scene is really does it for me because when D. Wallace loses the baby, you are 
horrified. So you're I don't just know. not ready for it. You just don't expect yeah. it. The, yeah. It's like, like when we talked about Carpenter with the little girl getting killed at the ice cream truck. Yeah. You just don't expect that. You don't expect yeah. a mother to, you know, stand up to defend her child and then die and have the child taken. It's just, just, yeah. it's, it's, it's immense. Yeah. Uh, big, big thumbs up for the Hills Have Eyes. In the rolling hills of eastern Pennsylvania, in this quiet community of simple farmers, untouched by time, a gruesome secret has been protected for generations. Into this world come three young women, drawn by the beauty of the land, unaware of the mystery it holds. How could they have known that what they would discover would call forth a deadly blessing. Your laws cannot crush the incubus. Ours can. So we jump now to the very early 80s and this 80. film called Deadly Blessing. 81, I think, isn't yeah. it? It's, uh, it's interesting to me in that it is a very different approach for Craven. I mean, not that it doesn't have visceral violent moments and sort of ugliness to it, but what we have here is a much more atmospheric, suspenseful, sort of supernatural... Uh, it, it's about feelings more than it is about being viscerally sort of harangued by the movie. Not that there isn't shocking imagery, but the movie isn't about it. It's about keeping you on edge. And yeah. I think it's about... Once again, like we discussed, Res Craven really sharpening his knife with yeah. religious extremism. This yeah. uh, group of, um, I believe they're called Hittites here, which is sort of jamming off of the Amish thing. He, they, they said that they wanted to, this sort of sect, this Hittite group, to make the Amish look like swingers by comparison, yeah. right? Were, were, were they called Hitties, though? Hitties? I, well, I thought they were called Hitties. Yeah. But, Hitties, not only about there, there's this hardcore uh, community of similar to Amish, sort of old school, intercloistered cult, I guess you yeah. could say, right? Um, they live what you know looks like a very peaceful sort of life on the farm, living a hard life off of the land and praying for all of us sinners who don't have it all figured out. Um, but evil goings-on start happening. Well, very notably at the beginning of the movie, a man sees a what looks like a scrawling of some incubus symbol in a barn and is run over seemingly supernaturally by a tractor. Yeah. Um, the incubus. The yeah. incubus is at work. Um, yeah. So then enter, you know, three hotties. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're not ugly. Yeah. Uh, who sort of come into the scenario and sort of uh, explore the increasingly bizarre mystery of this... Hittite cult and what these what these deaths might be centered around and he uses sort of this sort of rural environment to sort of exploit exploit big city fears things like snakes and spiders and the sort of rural outside that we've sort of hidden ourselves from and then taken to the step further like I said this extreme religious cult which uh, seems capable of anything both great good and great evil. Yeah. Um, Wes Craven said this is the first time he felt like he got to work with like a legit movie star in Ernest Borgnine, so much so that he was kind of intimidated and scared working with him 
Uh, yep. Even this far into his career, he was a little bit starstruck by Borgnine. Yep. But uh, going back to where I started, I think this is sort of showing that Wes Craven doesn't just have to show us the stabby and the gurgle and the, and the nasty. He can he yeah. can work our nerves and he can do atmosphere, and yeah. you wouldn't necessarily have guessed that before Deadly Blessing. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I'm going to start talking about the death of Wes Craven's father, Paul Craven, at age six, had a huge impact not only on him but his body of work, because soon after his mother was a single mother with three kids and was afraid and the whole the Craven family joined this very strict Baptist church where they couldn't drink, couldn't smoke, couldn't dance and they couldn't watch movies. And as mentioned earlier, Craven later admitted in life that he felt very angry that he had this kind of upbringing and resented religious extremism. Uh, and you see this in Deadly Blessing, especially in that scene where there's that, is it spanking or whipping uh, in, at the at the church where the man, one of the members admits to wrongdoing, if you and will, or lying. publicly humiliated and, and, and badly hurt and yeah. to pay for his sins. Yeah, you get the sense that Craven's kind of working some shit out there. <laughs> um, anyways, and this theme is explored in this movie. It's 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 portrayed or dealt with in The Serpent in the Rainbow. It's dealt with the people under the stairs where religious extremism is a very horrifying but very real thing. Uh, and I find it very fascinating. I also find it kind of fascinating that the one film that sort of started him on the path of filmmaking was To Kill a Mockingbird, believe it or not. That's the film that really he knew where he wanted to make films. I found that kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, the the theme of religious extremism and the dangers of, of that are all over this movie and you can't take your eyes off it. Yeah. Uh, that's it's it's pretty it's I don't know. It's it's terrifying. <laughs> it's it, that, it that, does definitely have some creepy elements to it. Uh, yeah. I will say it kind of is reliant on a lot of scenes where people walk slowly from one place to another in the dark. And yeah. it's also very reliant on dream sequences and visions and things like, did that really happen? Did it not? Yeah. And a lot of this, you just kind of have to take on the chin. You just sort of have to say, well, that was a scary scene because I'm watching a scary horror movie and there needed to be a scary scene there. But there is a looseness to it and that not all of it necessarily seems to connect together perfectly well. But what is happening is that I want to sort of see the resolution to this. And yeah. uh, it, it is effectively creepy. Yeah. Uh, I will also say that circa 81, Sharon Stone is very attractive. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, the the women do feel like the fish out of water here. This The main character has been pressured to sell her land from this, uh, this religious sect and has continued to refuse so. So she believes yeah. that she's trying to be scared off the land by these bad people. And the bad people believe that she's a sinner and she's trying to be scared off the land by the evil succubus. Yeah. I think where we get to the most problematic point is we're towards the end of the movie because I think the thesis of the movie is that the evil comes from man. Man yeah. gives it a name and gives it a shape and calls it the incubus or the yeah. sin or whatever. But it is all man. It is all created by man. The evil in yeah. this movie is man. But Wes Craven had a final sequence forced on him at the end of the movie. Because yeah, this I... was the age of Carrie. This was the age of Friday the 13th. You had to end with a big jump scare. 
Yeah. So after that thesis is well maintained, and I, you know, maybe people would be disappointed by that. They would wanted to see that incubus and it didn't happen, you know. By actually having this demonic figure erupt out of the ground and pull this, you know, our, our heroine down to the hells below, it's yeah. a fairly cool sequence. Like the special effect, I think, is actually kind of neat, especially for the time. Oh no, it's 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 well executed. But it but... completely undoes what I think the movie was trying to do. Yes, I agree. It it, it is. It feels like I'm sort of this weird mass on the movie that needed to be cut out. It 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 doesn't work, and and you don't need it. You don't need to see the actual incubus come out of the ground. Um, I actually kind of found the, the sort of sleepaway camp type twist a little neat, where you know where where the evil was actually human. Yeah, and 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 that twist ending would have been great. You know, end credits. Where I, I can see myself it. at a younger age feeling a little bit ripped off, like as they like, really? well, this isn't the movie. No, I'm just saying I don't. Agree. This is a lot of the hardcore horror parents, especially people coming off of things like Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes, might yeah. be expecting a different thing from Craven, and you know, might feel you know, this guy's trying to teach me. I didn't come here to learn. I came here to see some tits and blood. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Um, but, you know, there is an intellectual layer to this movie, and I think that when he has that in his horror movies, because not all of them do, but when he yeah. does, it, much like with Cronenberg, it, it elevates it. It makes it, you know, stronger and makes it much more interesting. Yeah. Um, what I think we have here is a very interesting, very worthy watch, yeah. but it's not quite, you know, amazing. It's, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I think there's one too many dream sequences. He sure, like, that's a common theme especially in his early works. He loves doing those dream sequences. And well, I think this is all gearing us up towards Nightmare World, right? Nightmare on Elm Street's yeah. going to come out of this guy's brain. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I do want to talk about that snake scene because that snake scene, it's well done, man. <laughs> like, and this is not the first time we, where we have a young woman in the bath. Craven once again revisit, revisits that. Yeah. In Nightmare films, not once but twice. And we know it's coming. We know the snake is coming. But then it, it goes in the water, and the entire time I'm kind of going, where is it? Yeah. It's in that bath. And it's a big snake, so she's, she's got to notice it. You know. It's awful. Yeah. It's a great scene. Uh, and yeah. it is sort of classic imagery, is it not? You oh, know? Yeah. No, it's First very of all, beautiful. you have you know the naked female form <laughs> in a bathtub yeah. or in the bathroom in a place that is supposed to be sanctuary, that is supposed to be safety. And then you have the serpent violating this safe place and actually crawling yeah. into the tub. No, it is a really horrifying thing, but it is an isolated, almost short film in of itself, uh, interspersed yeah. within the movie, you know? Yeah. Same thing with the famous spider dropping into Sharon Stone's mouth. Uh, I, let's, let, let's talk about Sharon Stone, because, <laughs> because there's a couple of things that I do want to mention. It must have been really hard for Wes Craven to rewatch this movie, knowing the history of, of both him and Sharon Stone. One, with the spider, she actually demanded that the spider have the teeth removed. Yeah. Otherwise, she wouldn't do that scene. So and they that's... did. So they effectively killed that spider because it yeah. could not feed after that. Yeah. And, I mean, I could have actually done without the spider scene in a lot of ways. I mean, it does work. But it I didn't accomplish little, like, anything that the snake scene accomplished better. Yeah. Sharon Stone's performance is good. It's fine. You know, it, you know, as a three, as three women, they're all pretty strong. But it must have been really weird for Wes Craven later in life watching this movie because I'll give you some, some context to that. Um, Sharon Stone, uh, soon after this movie, became very good friends with Mimi Craven, 
For those who don't know who Mimi Craven was, that's Wes Craven's second wife. Um, and they were friends, really best friends for 10 years. Um, during that time, and this was outed by Joe Esterhaas. You know who Joe Esterhaas oh, yes. was. Yeah. He wrote a book, uh, let me see here, called The Devil's Guide to Hollywood. It's actually quoted in there where he goes on to reveal that Mimi Craven and uh, Sharon Stone had an affair. And Wes Craven found out about it. And that essentially affected, ended their marriage. And then on the day that his divorce was finalized, Wes Craven actually got a, a bouquet of black roses. And he actually phoned Mimi Craven saying, did you actually send me these black roses? And she didn't admit to it, but strongly hinted that Sharon Stone actually sent uh, the roses to him as a sort of personal, like, middle finger. Up. I think that, like, I can, re I, I can recommend the movie, but I have a yeah. hard time getting super enthusiastic about recommending the movie. It's an yeah. interesting thing. It's an interesting item in Wes Craven's career. He has made far worse movies than this. He has yes. made far better movies than this. But yeah. as far as that sort of tone of suspense, you know, I think yeah. this is where he really showed us that he could do that. No, I, I yeah, I can do stab. I can do boob. I can do stab. I can deliver sort of the cheap, easy yeah. horror movie scares. And there's, movie, and there's there's elements said, of that here in Deadly Blessing. You got you got your nudity and sex as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. There. But it's more about the vibe. It's about the suspense. Uh, yeah. The, the the terror doesn't come from the blood. The terror comes from the moments leading up to the blood. And that yeah. is sort of Wes Graven sort of showing his game. I'm, I'm progressing. And one of the reasons why I respect Craven is that he does progress. His movies, he, he, he doesn't want to make the same movie again. He wants yeah. to add something. He wants to make things a little different, you know? And yeah. sometimes he, he falls on his face. Sometimes he doesn't. Like I say, big swings. So, yeah. for sure, watch Deadly Blessing as an early 80s curios. It has all that wonderful aesthetic of 80s horror. It, it's very 80s, yeah. From the music to even... The look of the film—it's got that alien aesthetic or that '80s aesthetic to it. So, and what, what can you say about Mr. Borgnine? Well, I mean, he's definitely the figure of the strict religious sect. He is the guy that we're not supposed to like, and is you know the representation yeah. of all things bad. Uh, I think that it would be a hard role to mess up. I mean, he's basically yeah. asked to yell and be mean, and he does—you know—he does the job well. Uh, I, I like some Ernest Borgnine. I don't think this is a particularly distinguished work in his career, but uh... he rocks that beard pretty well, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's got he's got that, that that sort of Hutterite kind of beard. Well, and apparently he took a fall off a horse. He hurt himself not not insubstantially. He was offset for three days, so uh, that wow. would be another thing that would be you know a source of stress for Wes Craven. You know, to have your your major star get injured on set does not make you look particularly good. And I don't yeah. know exactly, I couldn't say what the reaction Deadly Blessing was now. Like, uh, it's certainly, it's remembered, but I don't think it was like a monster hit. I think it was just one of these things no. that, that came and went and didn't make too many ripples in the water. It's it, basically it, it, remembered now because it's Wes Craven and because it's the first time I think Sharon Stone had a speaking role in a movie. Yeah. So it, it made its money back, but yeah, it, it's it's a... At the end of the day, it is a passable horror film. It's not terrible. I think it's the ending bogs it down somewhat. Yeah. Somewhat. That's what I sort of think. It's but yeah. too bad. The creature looks good, but at that point, we don't need the creature anymore. So save yeah. that for the next movie, Craven. From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street. 
comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walk through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? In the shadows of the imagination lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow. So we're going to jump ahead to the um, later 80s with The Serpent and the Rainbow. This is uh, based on a book by Wade Davis, which was quite popular at the time. Um, It's part of this sort of stunt science collection where, you know, there are ostensibly history and science books, but I think that a lot of the appeal of the book is the fact that the author went to this exotic place and consumed exotic chemicals and went on an Aldous Huxley sort of style, uh, you know, mind trip and just sort of reported back on it in, you know, trying to be scientific about it. But basically, it's a series of fucked up events. Yeah. And the political climate of Haiti and all of that is also explored in the book. Yeah. Uh, what we have here in the movie is like very, very, very Cole's Notes uh, yeah. sort of patchwork version of the quite interesting subject uh, novel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That said, I do think that this is an interesting movie. It kind of stands out again in, in, as very different in, yeah. in, in, in Craven's work. Yeah. The main character who plays the author, uh, ostensibly, of the book, Serpent and the Rainbow, played yeah. by Bill Pullman, basically comes to Haiti to look into this sort of voodoo powder formula, as it is so called. Bill Pullman, don't you mean the President of the United States? <laughs> He'll always be pseudo Luke Skywalker to me. <laughs> Barb, Barb, <laughs> or pseudo Barb. Han Solo. Pardon me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I think Bill Pullman's pretty strong in this movie. It was sort of yeah. in the heyday of his career. Independence Day was on the horizon for him. Uh, it's a young Bill Pullman. He looks yeah. young in this movie. Young and energetic. It's interesting to me because this goes back to... I'm going to spill some beans for you and and my listeners. I love zombie cinema. Shock. Everybody take a minute to drink that in. Uh, But this goes back to the old school sort of white zombie kind of like plantation-driven chemical. Zombies are less about uh, reanimated corpse and more about the destruction of the human will. Being made into a slave, you know? Not yeah. because you, you've been you've been imprisoned, but because something fundamentally has been changed about you to make this you, you a willing servant. You're, you you have no free will of your own. Your will yeah. belongs entirely to someone else. This is sort of the traditional idea of the zombie. And yeah. here you have uh, a biologist trying to look into what the chemical equivalent of that is. Is there a powder that you can, you know, give to somebody that will make them essentially a zombie for you to use? Yeah. Um, there's stories like this, and again, it's documented on the book of people who have ingested this poison, either intentionally or unintentionally, who have looked so dead that they are buried alive. 
yeah. and uh, you know the horrifying repercussions of that. So there's a great bed of science and supernatural faith, Haitian faith and voodoo to build a movie around. And I do think that it is a strong movie. Um, but I, I'm not overly foaming at the mouth either. I would say like really? it's it's solid, but I, I, I was not I was not knocked over by it. Okay, okay, um, okay. It's a very fascinating movie. To me, I think it's probably his most fascinating movie that he's that he's made. It's got horrific elements to it. I think people who have a hard time with being buried alive will have some real problems with this movie because it's done more than once. And, that's, and it's, a, it's a terrifying concept. Um, when you say loosely based off the book, you're not kidding. No. I've, I've actually read the book back in the day. There's a lot of sort of biological data. Like, he go, like Wade Davis actually goes in depth about you know, the kind of chemicals and powder that he was seeking and experimenting and it's there is a really cool sequence in the film where he gets infected by it and you know goes scurrying around town as he's been poisoned and has that and that one line that i think that really sums up the movie i think it's on the poster or the original poster as well where don't bury me i'm not dead yet yeah um because you're still conscious you're still aware of your surroundings but everybody who's looking at you is just looking at this corpse but you're alive inside the light is still on and yeah. that is a horrifying idea. Yeah. And it's not unprecedented in science entirely. Yeah. Uh, even within nature, there's this bizarre uh, fungus that affects certain ants. They call it the zombie ant syndrome. Yeah. But this, this infection gets into the ant. And once it gets to its advanced stages, the ant does something that no ant ever does. It yeah. abandons its colony, climbs yeah. up the, the branch of a weed or a tree or a plant, and it dies there so that this fungus can be reborn out of its corpse. Yeah. And it's referred to as the zombie ant principle because some chemical overrides the, the ant's ability or, or, or you know, knowledge base to stay with the colony and drives it yeah. away. Yeah. So uh, it's not completely ridiculous supernatural stuff here. There are powders yeah. that can make you look like you're dead when you're not. There yeah. are powders that can destroy portions of your brain, but not all of it, and leave you basically chemically lobotomized. Yeah. Um, and because there's, you know, not a lot of control in, you know, who's doing this and that the science is sort of mixed up with superstition and witch doctory, it's hard to trust what you're seeing or what you yeah. know or, you know, what the potency of any given drug that your experience is going to be. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that it's a very, very interesting subject matter. Um, and I think that we have, what it almost feels like a series of sequences, like there's yeah. a sequence where he gets drugged, there's the dream sequence, there's the, yeah. you know, the torture sequence. It's a series yeah. of events, but the sort of through line story is kind of vague to me. Basically, this, this journalist biologist goes to Haiti and a bunch yeah. of fucked up creepy shit happens to him. It's basically as close to a plot synopsis as you're going to get. Along with the sort of political uprising that uh, is going on, they actually shot part of this in Haiti. That opening sequence, that's all real. Um, I mean, not not the the dream sequence per se, uh, where he finds that pilot, but when, with the opening credits, um, he was actually Craven and his crew were actually there when Baby Doc Duvalier was ousted from power, and so he was smart, grabbed his film crew and camera, and actually shot a a, a bunch of sequences of people celebrating. Uh, in Haiti as that was going on and then they had to leave because they 
we're concerned about the instability that happens with any regime change can you know yeah <laughs> be be frightening understood so it adds an air of authenticity um look i'm gonna throw my cards on the table here i love this movie it, it is my favorite west craven movie i'm biased because i got to experience in south africa a, a similar um well, no, I wasn't poisoned or anything, but I did get to learn a lot or a fair bit about South African black magic called Muti. Uh, one of the teachers that I taught with at the school knew it and actually had a whole book of it. And I was privileged enough to go on a couple of excursions with him. Now, this being a Hollywood movie, um, it likes to show the darkness of voodoo, voodoo itself. There's a lot, actually a lot more good. It's it, actually it's an element of Christianity, to be perfectly honest. And there's a lot more good than there is sort of evil with the zombies. But there are spells in voodoo, as there are with Moody, where you know certain plants allegedly can make a person fall in love with you, or um, you know you can exercise you know a ghost that could be following you, if you will. Um, that stuff actually exists, and people actually believe that. Um, and I think that adds an element of terror, at least for me, but I'm biased just because I've personally sort of dipped my toe in that water. Now, I didn't see any real elements of that, but the fact that there are a lot of people at, at around the globe that believe in this kind of stuff and claim to have experienced that kind of stuff gives me gives me pause and even elements of the book that and it is loosely based off the way davis's book well in did. fact the movie was originally supposed to say based on the yeah the book uh the serpent and the rainbow and they changed the credit to yeah. inspired by yeah and that's, so and that's, that's how awful. far they've strayed. Like, yeah, no, I, I recommend the movie, but I also say definitely read the book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the book and the movies, they are completely separate animals. Even the villain in this piece, um, Davis has gone, on, gone basically online saying that he got along well with law enforcement. They were actually very helpful yeah. in aiding and protecting him. So there's no, the villain played by... Zake uh, Mokai. Zake uh, Mokai. He, he was, he's really good in this movie. He's he's from South Africa as well, uh, and he was pretty big in the eighties and even early, you know, the nineties as well. I like um, him as sort of a modern practicing witch doctor. Yeah, uh, and, but the fact that he's using science, he uses faith as sort of you know the the sway and influence, but he yeah. uses science to prove his power. Yeah, right, like like. We don't see anything overtly supernatural till later in the movie. Most of the stuff yeah. is like Bill Pullman's hallucinations, the head trips yeah. that's happening either from the chemicals he's in, he's taking in, or for yeah. him having a terrible nightmare because of all the awful things that he's been <laughs> privy to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just mainly that shape and structure of the movie that the fact that it feels more like a series of events than it does a story to me is kind of weighs it down. As I've yeah. said before, I'm sort of a story yeah. guy, and I don't know what this guy's journey is. Yeah, well, it's it's his journey, you know, in a world both the spiritual and it's even uh, that there's that opening, that opening. What would you call it? The when the movie starts is that little blurb at the beginning. Yeah. Prologue, if you will, where it says that you know it, there's a world in between reality and heaven. 
Um, and that's, you know, in voodoo, it's called the serpent and the rainbow, if you will. Um, once again, to me, that, that, that's terrifying. Is it a linear story all the way? All the way? Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's more episodic. There's, there's events than there's uh, a solid through storyline. But I was thoroughly engrossed with this movie. The imagery alone, like this is Craven firing on all cylinders. You know, that, that bride, that zombie bride. Yeah. That's the one image that is just burned into my brain from this movie. It's yeah. sort of what I think of when I think of this movie. Yeah. That 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 jaw unhinging and and that snake shooting out. I know it's coming, and I still jump. Uh, the sequence where it, once again it's a dream sequence, and he falls sort of backwards or upside down in the grave, and then falls into the grave, and the blood starts to come up. That's beautifully well done. Um, I even like the end battle. It's ridiculous, you know, when the powder is released. It is. It is ridiculous. Uh, where, you know, w that other witch doctor's spirit is released and then it battles the evil Zeke Smokey. Yeah. Um, and it's all really... of the evil that he is subjected our hero yeah. to through the film yeah. is subjected to him in about a 30-second period. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also love the supporting cast. Like, uh, the character of Louise Mozart, played by Brent Jennings, um... They actually went, and they, it's in the movie, like those voodoo scenes where they practice, you know, where the clays and the hands are on fire, yeah. that's all, like they actually went to a voodoo, voodoo sessions. That's all real. That's all authentic. Craven was allowed to go in there and, and record that. And once again, to me, that, I appreciate that air of authenticity. Um, it also has probably one of the, the most brutal scenes of violence ever put on celluloid <laughs> that torture scene in the chair where he's naked and that line yeah what do you want i want to hear you scream <laughs> and the nail goes down in in into his, his pp they drive a nail through the shaft of his penis again we, we don't see it but i think it's interesting that it's pointed out later on that the wounds were inflicted with the intent of hurting him not killing yeah. him it, yeah, it, it, scaring it, him. Yeah, it really wasn't, you know. <laughs> they yeah. could have just cut his throat, but they, they didn't want to do that. They wanted yeah. to traumatize him. They wanted him to be fucked up. <laughs> and that would do it. It reminded me of the sort of Casino Royale torture sequence yeah. with James Bond. There's something, I think, that every guy, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, that, you know, being strapped and naked and having somebody threatening... <laughs> <laughs> your, 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 your penis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's about as vulnerable a feeling I think as guys could have. So. Um, I also love that dinner scene when he returns back to America and realizes that the evil has followed him and the hands start... I think it's out, coming out of the plates if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Nothing has changed though. He can't outrun it. He's still going to have yeah. to find a resolution. Yeah. Um, and, then, and that woman bites the glass. Yeah. And, is it real? Is it not real? That scene. Um, I thought that that worked really well. I don't think you'll be terrified by the serpent in the rainbow. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think he's made scarier movies, but I do think, to me personally, this is his crowning achievement. Um, it's the film I've seen the most of. I, I, I agree. I'm biased because I find this element of faith fascinating that there is a dark side there's mostly good and, and i mean people who want to truly learn about voodoo i don't think 
should take the serpent and the ring serpent no, no, and the ring bell. This is a movie, not a film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If if you are actually interested in voodoo, there's a lot more good in the faith of voodoo than there is evil. It's a, it, the evil aspect, the zombies. It's really a small element of it. So don't be going and thinking, oh, I I learned all about voodoo from this movie. Read the book because the book is awesome. Yeah. The movie is also very good, but they are different animals. I, I want to also mention that to, to the viewer out there, that the, the, a lot of this is fabrication, but it's so well made. And, and like I said, the use of dream sequences, the imagery that he creates is awesome. I, I, it, to me, it's a fascinating story. Kathy Tyson is very easy on the eyes as well. <laughs> that helps. Um, I find the character of Kristoff a very interesting element, and it's terrifying to me that this is real, that you can be put in a zombie-like state where you are technically dead but can be brought back and you're buried alive and know it. I think, to me, that that's horrifying. Yeah. Well, um, I think, I think like, we agree and disagree. I mean, uh, I think yeah. you like the movie more than I do. I, I yes. think it's very interesting. In fact, I think it might be more interesting than good <laughs> in that way. Wow. Like, but I mean, it's 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 a solid movie. But uh, I think he's made better ones. I think that yeah. really the highlight reel of the Serpent and the Rainbow is sort of the scare stuff. In a way, like the amount of material that came out of the book, you could probably get two or three movies out of. So uh, maybe it was just too big a book to crack. Um, but I definitely encourage people to check it out, and it's definitely a strong entry in his oeuvre. I just. Uh, for me, uh, I, I, I get the feeling like it's going to rank higher for you than it does for me. Market, common market. I'm doing a film about my nightmares as I'm dreaming them. In order for the movie to continue, it, it was dependent on me having more nightmares. Well, fortunately, I did. I'm a little frightened by what Wes may have tapped into. I frankly felt that it was over when we did the last, the final nightmare. In a town where movies go over schedule, and directors go over budget. Something far more evil is out of control. Do this. Okay. Um, Wes Craven's new nightmare. There's some yep. interesting history leading into this movie. Wes Craven was not particularly happy with the sequel chain of events to his Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, he kind of, I think, envisioned Nightmare on Elm Street as a sort of a standalone horror movie. But because, you know, his producer uh, bent over Robert, backwards. Robert Shea. Robert Shea bent over backwards to get that movie made and, you know, wanted to franchise it so that he could turn this little up-and-coming new line cinema into a proper Hollywood player. You know, he understood that and played ball. But How's the Freddy built? Yeah, absolutely. You know, no Freddy Krueger, no Lord of the Rings. But I do get the feeling like they kind of creatively and personally separated for a while over these Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And uh, when it, you know, Freddy's dad properly shot the bed of the franchise. Uh, Woo! With that, yeah. oh, that's, that's Freddy's dad. Robert Shea was still, you know, he liked his golden goose and he was going to get as many eggs out of it as he could. So he called in a meeting with Wes Craven. He sat him down in his office, apologized gave him a huge fucking paycheck, basically, of money earned in, 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 you know, from all of the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street, and then asked him, could you make me a Nightmare on Elm Street movie? And can you make any Nightmare on Elm Street movie you want to do? In a way, I kind of feel like they mended fences, and both got what they wanted. You know, yeah. Rob Shea got another uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie, 
And Wes Craven got to do the Nightmare on Elm Street movie that he felt was a worthy sequel to yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. All this is prologue leading up to this movie. We're talking about the new Nightmare. But uh, I thought it was interesting to, to give that context. Yeah. Uh, 1994, I don't think you can deny that it was a prescient movie as far as where the meta sort of horror movie was going. Yeah. But in the interest of voicing an unpopular opinion, I'm not huge on A New Nightmare. Basically, the movie opens on the set of them shooting a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Wes Craven is a character. He's directing the movie. Heather Langenkamp is a character. Robert um, England is a character. Robert England is a character. Robert Shea shows up in this movie. I do think that, for the most part, I mean, people who w didn't intend to spend their lives in front of the camera, like Robert Shea and, uh, you know, Wes Craven himself, okay, well, I'll give them, I guess, something of a pass. But as far as Robert England and Heather Langenkamp, if you cannot play yourself convincingly, that raises questions <laughs> to me. Anyway, okay, well, the, okay, okay. I think that the what what Wes Craven was going for is that in the sort of culture of myth making, of which I think we can include horror movies a part of, yeah. Um, you lock into something. You you are telling stories that bubble up from the subconscious. Wes Craven has said that a lot of his best ideas have come from dreams, hence Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street stuff like that. But I think the conceit is is that you're harnessing something real. There yeah. is some sort of supernatural element that you get this inspiration from. And yeah. somehow giving it a shape and giving it a name, in this case, the shape and name of Freddy Krueger, yeah. you empower it. Yeah. And so basically the, the conceit of the movie is that the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise has conjured this actual physical demon. Yeah. Or whatever you want to call it. I'm just using Dream the word. Dream demon. Yeah. Dream demon, essentially. That can exist in the real world and do real damage. Uh, yeah. Most notably, Heather Langenkamp's husband is the first victim yeah. uh, of it here. So it's got a lot of balls in the air, and it's a fairly forward-thinking horror movie, especially for 1994. This is before Scream. I understand why people like it. Um, I think what the most important element that Scream had that this movie doesn't is yeah. a self-aware sense of humor. Yes. This has none of that. In yes. fact, this it is has so nasty. little of it yeah, that it this, almost this is a nasty feels... Horror. Yeah, it, it's, it's a, a proper horror film, but I think the fact that we're looking at Wes Craven and Walt Rob Shea putting themselves in a horror movie instead of feeling innovative feels kind of pretentious. Really, really, because to me, the scene where Heather visit actually visits Wes Craven at his house, or maybe it's Robert England. It is Robert England, but th there's there's two scenes where Heather visits both Wes Craven and Robert England, and they're both very much terrified and affected because Freddy's also affecting them, I thought that worked really, really well. And I did not find it pretentious. Um, I mean, what in a lot of ways, what Craven here has done is he's done a horror version of the player. Mm -hmm. So there's a little sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But and not before, humor, I yeah. would say. Maybe, yeah, no, it's... Maybe it, a wink and a nudge, but he's, he's making a horror movie here. He's asking yeah. us to take this all very seriously. Yeah. And that's fine. In fact, generally speaking, I prefer that. But yeah. uh, that's definitely what differentiates it from the Scream franchise. And yeah. like I said, I mean, I was saying it comes off pretentious. I'm not saying necessarily that it is pretentious, but I'm yeah. saying without that wink, without yeah. that sort of Scream edge to it, 
it yeah. reads a little bit that way. It reads like, yeah. look at me, I'm, I'm a producer, but now I'm in front of the camera. The horror movie is slowly becoming about the people who make it. Yep. Um, I think for that story to work, though, and the story they're telling with this, um, they had to, you know, because at this point, Wes Craven, you know, everyone knows who Wes Craven is. Most people know who Heather Lankenkamp is. Everyone knows who Robert Englund is. So to have them play themselves and be deeply affected by this evil manifestation of Freddy Krueger, to me, it worked. Yeah, I felt something... their fear too, but their responsibility. If they if they did unleash this evil spirit in the world, like they're responsible for these deaths. Yeah, something else that to me that really really worked because at this point, this is what is this like the seventh Nightmare on Elm Street film? Is it or so, the eighth? Yeah. yeah. Say so at this point, Freddy Krueger was basically a walking comedian. That you is know, true. He, he comes, he kills, he tells a somewhat you know somewhat funny line, and then dismembers his victims. So Freddy had ceased to be menacing. In this film, he's very much a threat, and he looks different. Yeah. You know, horror films got their start in German expressionism. Expressionism, excuse me, that art form, all the way starting with the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. A lot of people sort of credit this, that film as the birth of horror movies. This film is marinated in that style. Even the dream world at the end, and I kind of agree the end, the film loses its steam because we know that Freddy's going to you know, eventually lose this battle and they get the kid back. But that world, the imagery with that, it's, it's a mixture of M.C. Escher, German Expressionism. Like, to me, those images just danced across the screen. Yeah. And once again, this is Craven engaged here. Even the look of Freddy, with you know, instead of that usual metal claw hands, it's bones yeah. and you know sharp bones. I you know I thought that was a neat element. And he's mean. He's mean and nasty. He doesn't throw these one-liners that it had been synonymous with Freddy. This one, we don't even see the real Freddy until really the third act. He, he he's there's there's a genuine palpable dread that goes for two thirds of this movie. And then when Freddy does finally show up in all his glory, it loses a little bit. But he still looks, he's gorgeous to look at in that regard. Well, I will um, agree with you that Craven effectively gave Freddy his teeth back. Yeah. Because especially by that last entry, Freddy's Dead, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it stopped being even pretending to be a horror movie and became yeah. this just ridiculous, violent cartoon. Yeah. And I, I think that his genuine attempt to make Freddy uh, frightening again, yeah. I respect that. Uh, yeah. I also have this feeling like it's another Nightmare on Elm Street movie and uh, it, 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 no. it's cool, but where do you go from here from a franchise standpoint? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. And it was a difficult, a difficult decision to, you know, wh what do you do since there's been about six other films before this? How do, how do you make this? even remotely scary again, because Freddy at that point had ceased to become scary. Yeah. Um, and I think he succeeded for the most part. Is it perfect? No. They're, 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 like I said, the film sort of loses its steam towards the, the final act. Uh, uh, I think that the scene with the babysitter in the hospital was well rendered. Yeah. Uh, both the, the trust relationship between Heather Langenkamp and her uh, as far as her saying, you know, to don't let those doctors put that kid to sleep, and the babysitter, you know, <laughs> backing it up almost violently, doing yeah. everything right, making us like her, and yeah. then having her killed in a, I think, consciously callback 
murder sequence to the first kill from the original Nightmare on Elm Street with her being dragged up the wall of the hospital. And uh, I think like that scene really works. And you're right, Freddy is scary briefly for that moment. But it took a long time to get there. And I do think that the movie is a little slow. (laughs) I do. I do also want to give a special shout out to Miko Hughes. For all you horror nerds out there, he's the kid that was in Pet Cemetery, um, where he was in Mercury Rising. Um, what else have I seen him in? Uh, Apollo 13. Um, he didn't... I think kids acting in movies, it's, it's a hard sell in a lot of ways. Yeah. It, it's a tough racket. And I think he does pretty well in this movie. I don't know if it was this movie or Pet Cemetery, but at one point the kid had to cry. And, I, and this, this story disturbs me in a lot of ways. But they were trying to get this, this scene where the boy was, you know, to be visibly upset and crying. And the director wasn't getting it. And so the parents came in and says, well, we know how to make him cry. We just don't like to do it. But we know how to, you know, I can, we can get the shot for you. And so they went and they whispered in his ears that the father, that they were going to die soon. And that visibly, like, he, like in his eyes, just went, Wah! And the tears just came like that. Yeah, that's, that's child during, abuse. That's yeah, child it abuse. Is. It is. It is. Um, I just, so I don't know if it's this movie or it was Pet Cemetery, but I found him pretty good in this movie. He didn't annoy me. I'll say that much. No. Um, but yeah, that story has always kind of stuck with me whenever I think of Miko Hughes in that regard. I do think it's tricky handling kids in horror movies, like yeah, you know, especially the more involved they are. Like he's being kidnapped and chased around by Freddy, you know. So it's yeah. much like the little girl in The Exorcist. I mean, how can you how can you ask a girl to do that and not you know somehow break her innocence a little bit, you know? Well, and also taint your own soul if that's you know <laughs> if you believe in that kind of stuff. I do also like the element because the stuff with the with the California earthquake, yeah, that's all real as well. And once again, Craven went out with his film crew, and like that's that's all authentic. That's real stuff you're seeing there. So I, I really like, like he, that Heather woke up from her first dream to the earthquake. I thought that yeah. was a nice touch. Yeah, um, so I, I like I like that as well. Again, I, I always come off way more negative than I mean to. Here's yeah. what I will say: I love that it sets the table for Scream. Yeah, because I really do think that it does. And I love that it's a much stronger entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street series than we've seen in a while. That said, I can't help but wonder if Wes Craven had been in charge of the Freddy Krueger franchise and we had seven Wes Craven Nightmare on Elm Street movies, if they would be more or less interesting than the ones that we had. They would probably not be as funny, but they might be more art wank. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. That I agree. I don't think we would have seven Freddy no, Krueger movies. That's that's if exactly with, why he's not involved, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know he was quite bitter and jaded. He read the script for the second run and went, "This is shit." Yeah, and they proceeded to make the gayest horror film, or one of the gayest <laughs> horror films ever made. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, like I'm I big, say, like uh, there are good things to be said about it. I mean, the. There are people that seem to just love this movie, and there are people that hate it. And I'm yeah. I'm kind of in neither camp. I think it's it's an above average entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, yeah. But I don't. I think it's maybe a little bit oversold. I think it's maybe okay. it, it, it's um, it's prescient to where horror movies were going, but it's not as smart as as you know where we arrive when we get there. Is my Woodsboro Massacre anniversary question. What is your favorite scary movie? What's your favorite scary movie?
scary movie. One generation's tragedy is the next one's a joke. What is your favorite scary movie, man? I'll show you. <laughs> this week marks the anniversary of the infamous Woodsboro murders. Local celebrity victim, Sydney Prescott, chose to return to her hometown. Welcome home, Sydney. Watch the preview of coming events. What do you want? Who is this? He's trying to do ghost face. I'm standing in the closet. Liar. So there's plenty of reasons to be grateful for the Scream uh, franchise. Some would wonder whether this fourth installment was completely necessary, but in a way, I kind of like it that Scream 3 wasn't actually written by Kevin Williamson. So in this way, at least Kevin Williamson can bring this cycle to a close. Um, whether or not this was meant to be the final chapter, I'm kind of hoping it is, because to me, no Wes Craven, no authentic Scream. But the real reason... Side Sorry, the real reason I'm grateful for Scream 4 existing is because if it didn't, my soul to take would have been Wes Craven's final film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. What Let we have here. About that movie. <laughs> indeed. That'll be a conversation for another day. As yeah. much as Scream 4, and this is as much merited by the chance that it is the, the fourth entry in the, in the franchise, is clearly not the best Scream movie. I mean, yeah. it's it's a fairly decent, entertaining, whatever, slasher movie. <clears throat> um, but I'm nowhere near as excited about Scream 4 as I am about Scream and, and Scream 2, you know? Um, but yeah, we started with Last House on the left, and we're ending with Scream 4. Um, Sydney Prescott has written a novel, and she's on a book tour to promote it. And upon returning to her hometown, shock among shocks... Some ghost face killings prop up again, and uh, her old pals, played by David Arquette and Courtney Cox, band together to try and find who the killer, or indeed killers, may be. Yeah. We've been here before, four times before. Does uh, Wes Craven bring anything to it to distinguish? Yeah. You know, Scream 4 kind of reminds me of that person at that party who tells that joke that he or she saw on, on an HBO comedy set, uh, comedy special, you know, maybe a year ago, and thinks that joke is going to be funny if he or she tells that at the party, but they don't quite hit the landing. That's kind of how I, I, I sort of see Scream 4. I mean, all the elements of there of a horror film, and as a slasher film, I mean, it, it does deliver the goods, <laughs> um, but the jokes aren't as crisp. They are, you know, they're not as as funny as, or even original as I say, you know, that the, the first Scream had. It seems almost a little preachy when spoilers. One of the killers gives the reason for why th this person is doing the killings. That they just they wanted to be famous. You know, at this point we're well into the whole saga of Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian. So yawn. Yeah, well, and that's more. And that's more Kevin Williamson who. And actually, he wants to disown this film because Edwin Kruger was brought in to do a ghost right, by the yeah. way. So, uh, and, and, and Kruger is one of the uh, producers on it, but he, Kruger did do a ghost right on this film, and, and so Williamson's not too happy with it. Right. Well, I definitely got the feeling like his finger wasn't on the pulse as much of the culture as it was in 96. I think it was 96 when Scream came out. Yeah. I, I've often said that I think Scream is the sort of quintessential 90s movie. 
Yeah. Like, it, it sort of defines that decade quite nicely. Yeah. Um, it's dark and it's ugly, but for some reason it's not taking itself seriously. Like, that, that yeah. is the 90s. <laughs> um, it, yeah. yeah. But by yeah. the time we get to screen four, we're well out of the 90s. And I don't think he has his finger on the pulse of youth culture in a way that he does. He yeah. imagines that this is what kids talk and sound like, but he doesn't know it. And he's not as sure-footed. Now, it's interesting you say that he, he didn't, or that the script was rewritten. He is credited as the, the writer yeah. on this. Well, the bulk, I, of it's, the bulk of it's him, but Kruger did do a pass on it. I had, uh, until re-watching this movie, sort of just in my head put, Scream 3 was the least fa- my least favorite of the Scream movies. I yeah. think the moment where Jay and Silent Bob walk through the scene in Scream 3 is the jump the shark moment of the Scream franchise. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's probably the worst moment of the whole franchise that it happened. But I gotta say, upon watching Scream 4 again, it made me think, I need to watch Scream 3 again, because I wonder (laughs) which one is worse. Now that said, I'm saying like it's the worst of the Scream franchise, but I'm a fan of the Scream franchise. If I'm in the mood to watch a movie like this, the Scream movies are there for me. Yeah. But I think you feel the desperation right away. Like the opening sting. When the original Scream, we had the Drew Barrymore kill, and then the sequel, we had the double murder that happened actually in a movie theater, you know? And they they sort of, you know, trying to continually outdo themselves. What we have at the beginning of this Scream is a series of false starts. And a yeah. series of sort of teasing the audience. Is this the real movie or is this a parody movie? Or is this, yeah. when is the real movie going to start? And yeah. when the real movie did start, even after the opening credits, yeah. I still kind of feel like the real movie didn't start yet. Yeah, no, it, there's one too many false starts. It's it, 10 minutes of the movie goes by before we actually get the opening titles, you know, opening title, Scream 4. And at that point, you're like, and like the whole Anna Paquin, who's the other actor with with the, her? Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars oh. actress. Yeah, I can't remember her name. Right I now. can't remember her name. Kristen yeah, that, something or other. Kristen Bell. Thank Kristen you. Bell. Um, yeah, at that point you're kind of like, okay, I I know you're trying to be kind of cheeky and witty here, Wes and Kevin, but man, yeah. And it's it, partly because in a lot of ways the Scream films brought back the slasher into into popular mold like a lot of a lot of slasher films came back pretty quickly after the scream to capitalize on that popularity so in a lot of ways by the time we get screen four and it's 10 years after screen three there's a lot of been there done that with that film you can get you can get a sense of anger from williamson where you sort of think i'm being sort of smart here tackling this whole culture or subculture of being famous just for being famous kind of thing and also, here are the rules of the horror films. You know this, but now we're going to completely, you know, pull the rug from your eyes because it's a reboot. Mm-hmm. But once again, it's, it's tiresome. And you just kind of roll your eyes a little bit. I mean, a- as a sort of turn your brain off, you know, maybe it's Saturday night and you want to watch a good, you know, slasher film, Scream 4 does the trick. Um, it also depends on your care for the characters, whether it's uh, Courtney Cox, what's her name? Um, Gail Weathers. Gail Weathers or Sidney Prescott or Dewey. They're always fine. I think they killed the best character in the second one with um, Randy. Randy. And that that was something that I think was very smart. And in a lot of ways, Sidney should have died at the end. 
I really kind of felt that you know, because I don't think there's going to be another Scream film. The oh. film did, did, didn't do financially well. It, not as well as the other ones. I think that they were thinking to try and do another set of three, but the the reception was lukewarm enough that they decided not to. And they're doing this yeah. completely different spin-off TV show now and whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, how fresh can anything be with a number four on it? There's a, there's there's the struggle with that anyway. Yeah. And, you know, if Scream itself is a comment on diminishing returns, like I said, even yeah. when it loses, it wins. Yeah. But uh, I think that we're, we're just worn with use here. Much like yeah. the sort of chemistry between Courtney Cox and David Arquette probably yeah. literally has been worn. They got divorced during the making of this they movie. Were being, they were getting divorced while this movie was happening. So, yeah. yeah, that hurts. And, like, we've seen them for three other movies. So, I mean, everything yeah. is strained. I like some of the supporting cast. The the chick from Heroes, I thought. Had, uh, She's really good. Yeah. She's really good. And apparently. Hayden uh, Penetier, I think you yeah, said. Yeah, she was interviewed. And she actually, her character does survive the movie. We don't know this. But on the uh, extra stuff on the on the disc, the Blu-ray, she's interviewed and admits to that her character apparently does survive. I will say this, you know, like once and spoilers out there, folks. Once the killers' identities are revealed, I kind of had a hard time believing that these two people were the killers. Just the size of them and the amount of violence that they create. And when I'm thinking that, it was taking me out of the movie. Like, how can these two people? brutally kill cops uh you know Allison Brie is Briere from Community the way she's killed yeah like, I, I didn't believe it I, I thought they would have to be on like super steroids or something where the amount even of even if both of them were working together this the killer that we see seems more powerful than than yeah two. I, so I, I, had, agree I, with that. I had a hard time Weird seeing Mary McDonald in this movie. Yeah, I was going to say, this is the second movie I've reviewed, and certainly not the last movie I will review, that is very guilty of the sin of casting Mary McDonald and doing absolutely fucking nothing with her. She yeah. is an amazing actress. Yeah. I totally believe that she could do anything that is asked of her. And, like, her character is completely useless. Yeah. Like, she, does, she doesn't seem to feel or believe any of the stakes. We don't yeah. know her well enough to care that she dies. It's just like, it was just shocking to see how little they did with her. And I guess, yeah. you know, maybe she did, it's a good paycheck role, it's a high profile role, and, you know, she'll get other work from it. But, like, damn it, you guys, if you have Mary McDonald, use, use her. Use like, her. she should have been the fucking killer as far as I'm concerned. That would have been interesting, right? Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, have her, you know, pull the mask off and go, surprise! <laughs> yeah. And uh, credits. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I didn't believe the killers at all, and all and the reasons for their actions. Um, this it's not as smart as it used to be. One of the characters yeah. is constantly video casting his life online, so yeah. that we can have this you know found footage murder sequence. And yeah. as soon as that character is introduced, we know this about him. He's yeah. going to be killed off in a found footage murder sequence, and he's not the killer, yeah. right? right away like we can take it off the board which is like with the other screen movies there was a little bit of hmm can i puzzle this out can i puzzle this out yeah and i'm also i think it was innovative especially in the first screen movie that there were two killers nobody saw that coming yeah but, you know at this how point, many you fucking psycho expected. killers does sydney prescott have within arm reach of her life like good lord yeah. <laughs> and if you stop and you think about it they they show their hand really early at that club meeting where they're talking about the rules of reboots mm -hmm. uh, where those two boys 
are are talking about it. And at one point, I mean, they did the whole you know side to each other. Well, not to not to accuse him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it just sort of like aha. And at that point, I went, okay, you're definitely one of them. Yeah. So um, I definitely, for some reason, I wish I couldn't. I could tell you what it was. Yeah. Uh, immediately, sort of just decided that Culkin was one of the bad guys. Yeah. And uh, in the scene when uh, Sydney leaves her uh, niece, is it? Yeah. Played by um, Emma Roberts. Emma Roberts hiding under the bed. Yeah. She just says, stay there. And then she runs to continue the chase. Yeah. Right there. I knew, okay, there's your other killer. And yeah. to be honest, it was the first time in any of the Scream movies where I guessed the killers completely correctly yeah, me too. before me the too. end. It was the first time that ever happened. Even in the, the third one, when I watched it again, I almost felt stupid, yeah. but I didn't guess it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but in this one, I did. And I think that is a weakness. Yeah, I agree. Um, that I agree. said, for as mean as we're being to it, it's efficiently made. Like you say, yeah. Alison Brie from Community is in this movie. Yeah. I love her. And I'd like to think, given the chance, she would love me back. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it, it, it has that winking thing. The scene with the cops complaining about how cops always get killed off and scream in these types of scenarios and then yeah. they get killed off is yeah. obvious, but not without its entertainment value. I w I'll give Scream this. There's that, the, the, the death scene by what that's, what's that comedian's name? Um, we're going to find it here. Anderson, Anderson, Anthony Anderson. Anderson. <laughs> there it is. Where he gets stabbed in the head. Bravo. Bravo. I'm not sure about fuck Bruce Willis. I might not have taken yeah, it that it, far. It, it, it kills it, though. That I agree. That line kills it. Yeah. Just just have him bleeding from his from his forehead. End scene. Boom. Yeah. You know? That kills well, it. Well, and because... And that, I would have lost the fuck Bruce Willis because he is a comic light character who is yeah. then stabbed in the face and bleeds yeah. out. Like, then all of a sudden it's it's Scream, right? It's comedy and horror simultaneously. But yeah. they overbalance it with the comedy. So, it you know, he makes a punchline out of his own death. Yeah. and That's, <laughs> that's that, not that believable. Of, that kind of sums up Scream 4 for me in a lot of ways, where we know this is coming, but the, the joke kind of kills the movie. And I know that, that that's the elements of Scream. You know, there is that sort of yuck, da, 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 you know, witty humor to it. But been there, done that. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it, makes it, it makes the movie pedestrian. Yeah. That said, for movies that have the number four on the end of it, yeah. Scream is solid. And I mean, it it's maybe not the most uh, slam dunk a movie for Wes Craven to end his career on. But like I yeah. said... I'm so happy it wasn't my soul to take. Yeah, I know. True and that, uh, the Scream franchise is a big part of what he'll be remembered for. Basically, you know, I think that The Hills of Eyes and The Last House on the Left will sort of be something that horror movie fans will, will, will sort of treasure. But Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream will last. Absolutely. And uh, so, you know... This is part of the Scream franchise. It may be a C minus to the originals A minus, but if you're in the mood for Scream Four, here it is waiting for you. I yep. know it's kind of review proof. Is it dumb? Yeah. Is it fun? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not quite as fun as some of the other ones.
here we go all the way at number six, and I think you can agree on this, that even though this is his first movie and there are elements that, you know, he's starting to show how good he is, but Last House on the left is, starts at number six. There's just too many things wrong, and, and he hasn't honed his instincts yet. Then at number five, we have Scream 4. As a slasher film, it delivers the goods, but overall, meh. Then, at number four, we have Deadly Blessing. Once again, there's, some, there's enough good stuff here, but I think the continuous use of dream sequences, which is a Craven uh, trademark, starts to get uh, uh, take me a little bit out of the movie, but that snake scene is still very cool. Then at number three, we have New Nightmare. I like Craven's little player-type take on the horror world, and he makes Freddy threatening again. So that's number three. Number two, and this was hard, because I do think this is a more terrifying movie than the number one, but Hills Have Eyes. The Hills Have Eyes is number two. It's a very strong horror film done, made good not only by Craven's direction, but that cast really sells it. And for and it's a low-budget movie. It's it's seventies grain. The the aesthetic is works really really well to that movie from the music on down. So I'm gonna say number two is The Hills Have Eyes. I agree, it's a more terrifying movie than number one. But um, you mean The Serpent in the Rainbow is number one. I, I I I'm biased. It's my bias here that's getting in the way of it because I find the subject matter more fascinating. I think visually it's stronger. There's a lot of great imagery in this movie. Um, I agree with all the criticisms that you have. The, the, the story is going up and down. It's not completely solid. It's a, a, a more series of unfortunate events in that regard. But it's utterly fascinating. And I find that you know, the, the political stories of you know, Baby Doc du, Duvalier um, interesting as well. And just the focus on voodoo, you can tell an intelligent man made this movie. And, I, and, I, and I, it's my favorite Wes Craven movie. I, I visit it at least once every two years. Um, but I agree my bias towards that subject matter is putting it at number one. That's cool. I mean, you have a personal sort of yeah. fascination and stake in the subject. That's absolutely, completely valid. But I will give you that The Hills of Eyes is a far more terrifying movie. Yeah. Well, you're right. We don't match completely. But I think where we do match is that we're fans of Wes Craven. And, you know, for the most part, I would say check out these movies. The The closest thing I come to not recommending is my number six pick, The Last House on the Left. I yeah. think that the impact of that movie was only really valid within yeah. probably the first ten years of its release. <laughs> Yeah. I think today there are movies that are this harsh and are this nasty and actually have more to say. I think yeah. that it's significant for the time it came out. And as a first yeah. movie and making a movie that made waves, you know, I, I get it. But it's not my cup of tea. So in sixth exactly. place, for sure, Last House on the Left, easily. I don't know that I will ever watch it again, to be honest. Yeah, me neither. Um, in fifth place, controversially, I'm going to put Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, uh, uh, uh. I, I think it's okay. It's interesting, and again, I said it sets the table for Scream, um, but uh, it's a sort of adjunct sort of chapter to to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Uh, its validity is in the fact that it's written and directed by Wes Craven. Otherwise, I would have almost sort of thought it was dismissed as just sort of an interesting side project, you know. So you you're gonna put New Nightmare 
You're going to put Scream 4 above New Nightmare. In fact, Scream 4 comes right below it. Because what I'm saying in fourth place Scream 4, ironically, is that Scream 4 is closer to what I imagine a Scream movie to be than New Nightmare is to what I imagine a Nightmare on Elm Street movie to be. But it's more of the same. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's its strength and its weakness simultaneously, you know? Uh, but that's where I washed up on it. Scream 4 is in fourth position. Oh, well, the third, gloves are off now. <laughs> yeah. In third position is where I put Deadly Blessing. Yeah. Um, I think that there's pace problems, and I think that that ending does really hurt it. But yeah. I think if you were in love with that aesthetic of the 80s, which seems to be having this sort of uh, revitalization through filmmakers like Ty West and yeah. Eli Roth, who tend to ride the pony of that early 80s aesthetic. Uh, this isn't a movie that's trying to emulate the 80s aesthetic. This is a movie that is that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you want to watch something that's not a tribute, but is the real deal of that, The Deadly Blessing is that. And really, yeah. isolated scenes of this movie are very, very creepy. Arguably yeah. more than the whole of the film itself. But yeah. it's an interesting and I think kind of overlooked Wes Craven movie. That's why I wanted to include it here, because... I always kind of had a soft spot for it. And it's not just because yeah. there's cute girls with boobies out in it. So. And but there is that I, as well. <laughs> I'd never seen it before this podcast either, so thank you for that. There you go. So yeah, it was worth a watch, right? Yeah. In second place, and I apologize, my brother, is where I put The Serpent and the Rainbow. Okay, And yeah. uh, I just think that the, that book and that story and the Haitian culture and the voodoo culture and the, the idea of the modern witch doctor is so rich with potential that as good as this movie is, I just wanted it to be a little bit better, you know? And because okay. I'm a disciplined story guy, finding a through line, I think he was more interested in making these nightmare sequences and these drug trips and these sort yeah. of like very visceral experiential moments to the film that the story got lost. And as a, you know, an English major, a former English major, I value that, that, that clear line of story. So again, this yeah. is my personal biases coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, number one is definitely The Hills Have Eyes. It, you know, it, it's the low-budget, grungy 70s horror yeah. movies. Like, in, people think 70s horror, they think the big towers, right? There's The uh, the Exorcist, The um, the Shining, yeah. and, and the, the Omen, sort of like these big, clean tentpole pictures. But yeah. as far as that underground drive-in fair, that scuzzy sort of grindhouse... Yeah. horror movie that, that Tarantino and, and Robert Rodriguez like to emulate nowadays, The Hills Have yeah. Eyes is that authentically. It's not yeah. a throwback to it. It's not like a, a wink to it. It, it is. It is that thing. Therefore and it is I am. scary. And it has yeah. stakes. And yeah. it's like... You feel the, the deaths. Even the deaths of the bad guys you kind of feel in this movie because they're so ugly. So, you feel good, though. <laughs> yeah. But... It, it engages your emotions, and that's a yeah. high you know, compliment to pay. Yeah. And it's yeah. relatively early in his career. So on this stack of movies, I think that it's the one that most succeeds in achieving the goals it sets itself. Yeah. So that's why I'm putting The Hills Have Eyes at number one. But yeah. like I say, with the exception of Last House on the Left, I say if you're a horror fan, watch these movies. Yeah. And really, you know... Wes Craven's catalog. There are yeah. some dark corners to be found. Deadly yeah. Friend is not good. No. Shocker is not good. Yeah. My Soul to Take is embarrassingly not good. Sorry, which one? My Soul to Take. Yeah, oh. Uh, What's that smell? But the good far outweighs the bad. 
And like I say, big swings, Mr. Craven. Yeah. I respect that. I respect your career and genre, and I appreciate uh, all of the good times that you have given me. So, Honorary Jerry goes out to Wes Craven, and uh, you will be missed. He died at the age of 76, and uh, I think he had enough gas in the tank that he might have had 10 more years of movie making in him. So, yeah. alas. Uh, thank you, Mr. Wes Craven. Uh, yeah. Any final words? I'll give it to you, Mr. Beckman. Well, when I, you know, began to really sort of understand the nature of film and the language of film, Wes Craven was one of the first filmmakers to really teach me that. So when I, when I think back to a young Lee learning about that film could be art, he was one of the filmmakers to start all that. You know, Carpenter, Craven, even a little bit, you know, Hooper a little bit, although his, his record is far more spotty. So I'm going to miss him. I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna miss looking forward to the next Wes Craven movie because it's it's not gonna happen. And learning about you about for this podcast, I, I found a very complex man, a very thoughtful man, a very interesting man who had a very interesting life who took big risks. Like he left everything. He left a uh, an, an academic, well-paying career to go first be an editor in the in a big city and then a pornographer nonetheless but a, a filmmaker and succeeded and, and had he lived his life to the fullest so if anything I, I take my hat off to us in that regard and you you made some powerful images and some powerful pictures you will be missed that was Mr. Lee Beckman. Thank you so much for being here for the 62nd episode Holla. of Rank and Review. Holla. Thanks, brother. episode to an end. I hope you enjoyed that one. If you'd like to send feedback to Rank and Review, you can do that by sending your emails to rankandreview at gmail.com. This is your host and around Canadian Larry Parsons saying please seek out the show on iTunes, seek it out on Facebook, any podcast sharing network that you're working on or platform device if my podcast doesn't show up on there, see if you can do something about that. Tell that other movie lover in your life there's this podcast called Rank and Review, and that it's waiting for them. Thanks for listening, you guys. <laughs>